pray together. Lord, we come into your presence now to hear you speak from heaven to us, and we come to receive your, your reign, Lord, which never returns in vain, and we know, God, that it will bring a harvest in our hearts, and Lord, we pray that it would be a harvest of grace and not of discipline. It will only be discipline if we don't heed it. So prepare our heart, Lord, to, to learn your words and to love your words tonight. We pray your law would be our counselor tonight and we would be ruled by it, that it would be our physician and that we would be a patient under it, that it would be our tutor and we would be obedient to it. But who are we, Lord, to promise any service to you? And who am I as your minister tonight that I would do uh, any good, Lord, without your grace, without your help and strength from heaven? So be, therefore, Lord, pleased to reveal to us uh, your truth from your word and that your spirit would help us God and pray that you would um, work in us uh, God so that we can meet your commands and so that we can be obedient people and we pray this in Jesus name amen well if you have a bible you can open up to the book of revelation and you can go to chapter 8 which is where we will spend uh, our time together tonight uh, just a little bit of review since it's been a bit of time since we've been together. Um, we have been trekking through Revelation here at a pretty good clip, and there are seven cycles in the book of Revelation. We've been through two of them. Um, I have these uh, pieces of paper up here. I, had, I thought I grabbed more than just the one. I only have one with the cycles on it, all right? I do have more in my office. I can give them to you afterwards. We also have the one that has the different Revelation timelines. If you would like either one of these, you can come get them, but there's only one with the structure uh, on there. But they're up for grabs up here. You can just walk up here, no problem, and pick them up. But uh, what we saw is that in cycle one, you had Christ in the midst of the seven churches, Okay. And we got a picture of who he is. Also, we got a snapshot of those seven churches, which there's seven of them. Seven is the number of completion in the book of Revelation, God's perfect number. And so uh, we look at the seven churches, not just as seven real churches that existed in Asia Minor. We look at those seven churches as representing all of the churches throughout the church age. And so we can look at the problems that they went through, and we can see that those are problems that we're going to have to deal with as well, but um, as we are in this church age and we are striving to honor Christ, we just look to him, right? He's in the center of the churches. He is our model and we hold on until he returns in his second coming. In cycle two, there is a worship scene in heaven and we saw God the Father holding a scroll with all of history written on it and the scroll was uh, completely sealed and there was only one who was worthy to open it and that was the lamb who was slain who was standing, right? Jesus. And as Jesus opens the seals, we saw history unfold and we got a glimpse of what the world is like until Jesus returns. There's going to be conquest and there's going to be war and there's going to be famine and there's going to be death. We saw that in the first four seals. The fifth seal was opened and we saw that Christians are going to be persecuted and martyred. And then when the sixth seal was opened, we see Jesus returning to judge the world in righteousness. But in chapter 
7, we saw his people will not be touched by God's judgment. They are the sealed 144,000. They are his, uh, his ranks on earth, his church carrying out his will. And then ultimately, the 144,000 is the great multitude who will worship God in heaven from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Cycle two ends with half an hour of silence in heaven, an eerie awe over God's plan, over what God has said he will do and what God ultimately is going to do, the weight of his judgment. So in both of those cycles, we're getting a picture of the church age, what things will be like until Jesus comes back, and we also get to see uh, and we get an idea of what the second coming will be like. The more and more we go along in Revelation, the more and more we see details about that second coming, but we've seen from two perspectives so far, as we get into cycle three, we have another perspective to see history and the end of the world from. This passage we're looking at tonight is kind of like a bridge between the second cycle and the third. In fact, uh, biblical scholars who teach from this perspective, the idealist perspective, disagree with where cycle two ends and cycle three begins. It's a really dumb thing to fight about, so we won't. But uh, tonight we're just going to read kind of this bridge text that gets us from one cycle to the next. But it's a very important text because right here in the middle of Revelation, we get a really neat look into the meaning and the purpose and the importance of prayer, which certainly is going to be crucial for the church as they wait on the Lord's return. So Revelation 8, starting in verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Verse 2 begins with John seeing seven angels who were standing before God, and they have been given seven trumpets. These trumpets are the main literary device used to show us what's going to unfold in cycle three. So in cycle one, the main literary device that the Lord uses uh, to teach us was the churches. In cycle two, the main literary device, the main symbolic device that's used to kind of show us how things are going to unfold was the seals. As we get into the third cycle, now it's going to be the trumpets. The trumpets will show us these distresses and disasters that God will allow to come upon the earth throughout history and how all these distresses and disasters are little previews, little snapshots of what is to come in final judgment when Christ returns. The fact that they're holding trumpets, uh, if you've read the Bible a little bit, ought to cause the antennas to go up because the trumpet is probably the most important instrument in Scripture outside of our voices that God gives us. And uh, the trumpet has a prominent place throughout the Bible. When God gave his law to the people at Sinai, the law was accompanied with a trumpet blast. In Exodus 19, verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then in verse 19, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. In Numbers 10, when they would gather the people, they gathered them with two silver trumpets. And Numbers 10 tells us about them making these trumpets. 
Make two silver trumpets. Of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That means something to me as a marching band kid, all right? Because all through high school in marching band, we would, uh, we would be, uh, you know, at attention, right? We would, we would stand there, and for me as a drumline guy, I'm standing there with my snare sticks just like this, and, you know, don't smile, don't act like you're happy, sad, you are a robot that plays music at this moment in time, right? Until they break you. And the way that we were broken was with a trumpet blast. It was with the lead trumpet, and the trumpet line uh, would come out, and at the drum, when the drum major let them know it was time, they would let off the trumpet sound, and then once our snare captain hit the drum, we knew we were free to go and we could act like humans again, okay? So much in the same way, the trumpet was used to gather them and to break them so that they could disperse. It was like, okay, worship's over, and they would blow the trumpet to, to break them and, and, and send them back out. In Leviticus 25, when the year of Jubilee comes and and debt is forgiven and slaves are freed, it's commemorated with the sound of the trumpet. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. In Joel 2, Israel's southern kingdom, Judah, is weak from frequent military conquests in their land and from all sorts of agricultural hardships. And Joel is warning them that this weakness is a symptom of their spiritual state. You're weak because you're spiritually weak. And the stuff that's happening to you is happening to you because you're so spiritually negligent. And so in Joel 2 verse 1, the prophet says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. So when he calls the trumpet to be blown, it is a blast of warning to Judah that judgment is on the way. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus' return will be, will be uh, proclaimed and commemorated with a trumpet blast. Matthew 24, verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. You can see the important role that the trumpet plays in the scriptures, right? Um, the trumpet is used to gather people and disperse people. The trumpet is used for the giving of the law. The trumpet is used to warn about judgment. And the trumpet is used to signal that the Lord is returning. That will be a sound of victory to believers. That will be a sound of danger to unbelievers. But for the purposes of understanding Revelation 8, there's one scene I didn't bring up, and maybe you're sitting there and you're going, what about Jericho? What about Jericho? I'm getting to Jericho, all right? And Jericho, Joshua 6, is actually the most important trumpet scene for the purposes of Revelation 8. And really, we would say it is the most important trumpet scene for us to allude back to for Revelation in general and, and, and these seven trumpets. In Joshua 6, when Israel conquered Jericho by the power of the Lord, they they entered into the promised land, the wilderness wanderings are over, they need to clear out the people in the land, and one of their first tasks that they have is to go up against Jericho. 
And it's, it, it, it's not like they kind of built up, where it was like, let's take on a, you know, a, a few jobbers, as they would say in the pro wrestling business, all right? Let's, take, let's, let's, let's put a few guys down that, that are pretty weak. Let's defeat a few small groups. Jericho was kind of the big boy in the block. To have to go up against Jericho right off the bat would have been incredibly intimidating. But I, I, I believe that God put that big task on the ticket right off the bat because he wanted them to depend on him right off the bat. If they got a few victories over some weak people groups, maybe they would have been thinking that this was all being done in their own strength. But there's no way after the victory against Jericho that they could think this was done in their strength. Because what they did is had all the soldiers march around the city while seven priests carried seven trumpets, okay? So obviously we can connect that right to Revelation 8 and uh, the chapters that come after it. And they were to do that for six days, and on the seventh day when the trumpet sounds and the people shout, the walls come down and Israel took the city. To the people of Israel... Much like the, the, the sound of, of the trumpet blast will be when Christ returns, to the people of Israel, the sound of that trumpet meant victory in the Lord. But to the people of Jericho, it meant judgment and death. We certainly see a parallel for the New Testament church. The church has been rescued from slavery, just like the people of God are rescued from slavery, but we're not rescued from temporary slavery. We are rescued from the dominion of sin that has the ability to enslave us for eternity, and we've been rescued by somebody much better than Moses. We've been rescued by a perfect deliverer named Jesus, and now he leads us through this life of tribulation. And he does it with something even better than the cloud and the flame. He gives us the Spirit of God who writes the law in our hearts. And before we can fully enter into the promised land and before we dwell on the new earth forever, we have work that we must do here on this earth. And our work is not to go through this world and conquer nations with swords the way that the Israelites were doing in the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. Instead, our job is to conquer the nations of the world in the name of Christ with love and the preaching of the gospel, warning people of the judgment to come, calling them to repentance. So Joel Beakey connects this to Jericho, and he says, The people shouted, and the walls of Jericho collapsed. That is what God is going to do in the world. At present, God is encircling the stronghold of the enemy. And he's encircling, by the way, the stronghold of the enemy with the local church and the preaching of the gospel. When the last trump sounds, however, earth will crumble, and the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of God and his Christ. So let's keep Jericho in mind as we talk about the trumpets. And we'll keep this comparison to the New Testament church in mind as well. But to summarize what we see in verse 2 tonight, we have seven angels with seven trumpets. The trumpets are an important literary device, just like the seals, with lots of biblical meaning for the purpose of showing us history and the second coming from yet another perspective. When we come back on the 16th, all right, we will start diving into these trumpets uh, full full bore, okay? But for tonight, we're going to deal with these bridge verses we get in 3, 4, and 5 that get us to the trumpets. So trumpets are coming, okay? But uh, that comes after verse 5. We'll stop at verse 5 tonight. And the reason is, is I don't want us to blow past this brilliant bit of the vision that John has that teaches us so much about prayer with just a few words. If we go back to the beginning of this chapter, we had that sudden silence, right? Revelation has been so noisy. There's been so much noise, and all of a sudden, 
It's just silent at the beginning of chapter 8 for half an hour in heaven. Awe is, is built into that silence, right? Awe over what God has done. Awe over what God is about to do. And when is that silence broken? Well, it's broken really in verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So the first quote-unquote noise that we see break the silence is the prayers of the saints. Who are the saints? Who are these people praying? The Greek word for saint is hagios, and it means a most holy thing. So when John said the prayers of all the saints, he is surely, if saints means most holy thing, surely he's talking about the most righteous and devoted Christians among us, right? Because most of us would say, well, if the definition of a saint is a most holy thing, I don't qualify. So he must be, this must be talking about the prayers of other people. This isn't me. The reality is, is if you are a believer in Christ, you are a hagios. You are a saint. Your sin has been atoned for by the death of Jesus. He has received your sin punishment at Calvary. You, in return, have received his righteousness, which means you have been made holy in the eyes of God by Christ. You are a saint. Now, to be clear, you're also a sinner, right? You are a saint, that is your legal standing before God, and yet God is still sanctifying you, still separating you from your sin, still uh, uh, taking you and conforming you to the image of his beloved son. But just because you're still being sanctified doesn't change the fact that you are righteous and holy in the eyes of God because of Christ's death. And that is why you are a saint. You have been called out of the world by God. You have been separated from the world by his grace. He has set you apart as his own, and he looks at you as his most precious holy thing, a saint. And so the answer to the question here is the saints are Christians. That's who we're talking about. The prayers being talked about here, when it says the prayers of the saints, those are your prayers, and those are my prayers, and those are Billy Graham's prayers, those are Augustine's prayers, and Calvin's prayers, and and your grandma's prayers if she was a believer. It's all the prayers of all the Christians throughout all the ages. So our first point tonight is this. Number one, God hears all the prayers of all the saints. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. God hears all the prayers of all the saints. Each and every prayer of his children. And this text is evidence of that. In verse 5 you see that the prayers rise before God. Insinuating that they are accepted by him. To have our prayers accepted by God is a special covenant privilege that we enjoy as believers who have had the promises of God delivered to us by our faith in Jesus. That is not to say that God never hears the prayers of unbelievers. I don't know how often God hears the prayers of unbelievers. God might choose to glorify himself by hearing the prayer of an unbeliever and answering that prayer. Of course he may do that, but he is not obligated to it. God is not obligated to hear the prayers of people that do not know him through his son Jesus. He has no covenant with them, and that is why there is no obligation. He has no promise to them. But for us... He has promised to hear all the prayers of the saints and does hear all the prayers of the saints because the death of the Lord Jesus has made our prayers acceptable to the Father. 
The blood of the new covenant that Jesus spilt on the cross qualifies your prayers and my prayers for the throne of God. Charles Spurgeon said, the goal of prayer is the ear of God. It's the blood of Christ that sees to it that our prayers reach their goal. That the petitions of Christians are always welcomed by the Father. Now the prayers of the saints do not appear in a vacuum here. There's an eighth angel who shows up in addition to the seven with the trumpets. And this angel is standing at the altar with a golden censer that he has been given, um, and and it has has much incense in it, to, to offer on the altar with the prayers of the saints. The altar that's being referred to here, again, we got to keep our Old Testament close to understand Revelation. I think the altar being referred to here is the altar of incense. That would make, that would make sense, right? We're talking about a lot of incense here, okay? So it's the altar of incense in the holy place, in the tabernacle or the temple. Exodus 40 verse 5 says, And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. So here's what would happen. On the Day of Atonement the priest would carry a censer of incense inside the veil of the most holy place and then would use a cloud of incense to cover the mercy seat. That way the priest was shielded from judgment. Leviticus 16 tells us about this in verse 12. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. The fact that we're getting this imagery here in Revelation means that something is being communicated to us, right? God is saying something to us by referring back to the altar of incense. This is the picture I think he's, he's trying to get across to us. It's the picture of Jesus in his high priestly ministry taking our prayers and making them acceptable before God the Father as our intercessor. All right, I think that's what's going on here. To the point that some have even suggested this eighth angel is Jesus. The finest Baptist preacher God's maybe ever given us, Charles Spurgeon, says that this angel, this eighth angel, is the Lord Jesus himself, the great high priest himself. I don't think that's the case. I mean, far be it from me to stand up here and say Charles Spurgeon's wrong, but I, 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 uh, I'm doing it, I guess. I, I, I just, I think when Jesus shows up in Revelation, it's clear. I don't think you have to hunt for him. I think it's clear. It's like, oh, there he is. There's the Lord, right? There's the Lord Jesus. And so I think it would be more clear here if this is Jesus. But I do think this is an angel serving like a priest in Jesus' high priestly ministry here in this vision. And what the angel has done is he has come to add the incense of Jesus' priestly intercessory work in with our prayers so that they would rise to the Father. Because without the work of Christ, our prayers are not acceptable. In Exodus 30, we get a description of the priestly work of intercession. Exodus 30, verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it uh, once in the year throughout your generations. It is most uh, holy to the Lord. If there was no representation before God for the people with the priest, and if atonement was not made by the priest, then the people couldn't be heard. They would be separated from God. And so Aaron, the high priest, would enter into the most holy place as an intercessor, representing the people before God, and he would make sacrifice. 
And when the people repented and they trusted in the mercy of God, the sin would be removed and they could draw near to the Lord. But now in the new covenant, we have a high priest who is better than Aaron. In Hebrews 9, the author says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls, or if the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's a lot. But here's what the author is saying. The reality that was foreshadowed by Aaron the high priest entering into the most holy place to intercede once a year for the people the reality foreshadowed by that action has come to fruition in Jesus. And now Jesus delivers to us all of the good things that God has promised His children in the New Covenant. And He did this by giving up His superior sacrificial blood, not once a year, but once for all. And He did it not by entering into the temple or the tabernacle, which are copies of the heavenly worship sanctuary. He did it by going into the actual heavenly sanctuary to atone for us, not just the copy. And now He has obtained for you an eternal salvation and unending access to the throne of God in the heavens. And with that access, we can pray. And so without the priestly work of Christ, which is represented by the angel and the censor in Revelation 8.3, we would have absolutely no guarantee tonight that God hears our prayers. Can you imagine that sort of hopelessness? I, I, that's not a doubt I wrestle with. You might, and I don't want to put that, that, that past. Somebody in here might be struggling with the idea that God uh, is, is hearing their prayer. That's not a struggle I've particularly had as a Christian. When I get down on my knees to pray, I just assume God's going to hear my prayers because I trust in the blood of Jesus. But can you imagine getting down on your knees to pray and really having no idea as to whether or not God's going to hear you? By the merits of Christ, we are sure that our prayers are heard. And that our prayers are accepted by the Father, even if he doesn't grant what we're asking for. And we should remember this every time we pray. We should remember every time we pray that if our prayers did not rest on the altar, stained with the blood of Christ, then they would die at the ceiling. They would not rise up to God, or at least we would have no guarantee of them rising up to God. Without the high priest adding in his intercession... Our deficient prayers would be like lemmings jumping off a cliff into nothingness. And so we should thank God that he hears us when we pray because the Son of God laid down his life and poured out his blood and pours out his incense on the altar with our prayers. Now with all that said, with the context of Revelation in mind, some of you might go, well, why should I pray? I, I, I hear you that, that, that God hears our prayers because of the blood of Christ, but why should I pray? Because in chapters 4 through 6, we saw God holding a scroll with all of history already recorded on it. And then Jesus opened the seals, and we saw history unfolding. 
So if everything that is ever going to happen has already been decreed by the Father and written on a scroll, what's really the point in praying? I mean, isn't everything fixed? Well, let's start by commending good theology before we sort through the implications of it. If you showed up here tonight thinking that God has decreed everything that will come to pass, you showed up here tonight with good theology. You might be wrestling with that theology, but you showed up with good theology. Not because we think this is what God is like, but because God told us this is what he is like. Forty-six. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. When we see them opening the seals in chapter 6, the events written on the scroll begin to occur. Why? Because the sovereign will of God is being carried out on the earth down to each detail. He has decreed it in the scroll and he is bringing it to pass through the power of his son. And if that's the case, you might think, well, then what's the point of praying? If everything is decreed by God and it will come to pass, does prayer really do anything? This is a conundrum that we face as Christians. Unless you came tonight believing that God has chosen not to know the future, which if you came tonight believing that, I do not commend it, okay? That is not good theology and that is not what God has told us about himself. But if if you don't believe that, if you believe that God knows the future, you have to reconcile that God has already decreed the end from the beginning, and yet he says to us, pray like this. And amazingly, I think this little paragraph before the sounding of the trumpets can do the job of settling this in our minds as believers. Watch how the events unfold in this passage. The prayers of all the saints are on the altar in verse 3. The incense of Jesus' intercession is added in in verse 3. The prayers of the saints rise up before God from the hand of the angel in verse 4. The rising of the prayers, by the way, insinuates, like I said before, that God is pleased with the prayers. He is accepting them. And then what immediately happens? After the prayers rise up to God, the angel fills the censer from the altar with fire. He throws it down to the earth, and there's thunder and rumbling and lightning and an earthquake. And if you're going, wait, 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 hold on. We're we're 7.2 chapters in here. I have heard and seen enough that when I uh, am reading my Bible and I hear thunder, rumblings, lightning, earthquake, you're going, that sounds like the apocalypse to me. That sounds like judgment, and that's exactly what it is. The fire here represents God's judgment, and the results of the fire confirm that we're talking about God's judgment. We see a very similar scene in Ezekiel 10. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. And so that was judgment, right? And so here we get a very similar picture with the angel throwing the fire. And again, it's telling us about judgment. It is a preview of the judgment that is coming when the seven angels blow the seven trumpets. The thunderstorm and the earthquake, very similar to what we saw in chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. 
And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. In Revelation, it's very common for the second coming and judgment to be signaled by storms and earthquakes. It happens in chapter 11, and chapter 16, and in chapter 19 as well. The point here is to show that as God is pouring out his wrath on sinners and on the earth, creation itself will be coming apart. And it lets us know that the judgment is definitely from God because who else has the power to rip the universe apart except the one that made it? So do you see how this played out? There's silence in heaven, then God's people pray, and then he responds to their prayer by acting in justice, by pouring out judgment. Prayers that he hears because the intercession of Jesus has made them acceptable. So even though everything is decreed and everything's written on a scroll in Revelation 4 through 6, here we have the prayers of the saints bringing about judgment. How can both be true? How can God be decreeing the end from the beginning and yet at the same time the prayers of the saints are rending the judgment of God? How can both be true? How can everything be decreed and at the same time our prayers seem to have an impact on God's actions? The only way it works is if God has sovereignly worked the prayers of his people into his plan. It only works if we understand that God has not just decreed from eternity past what will be, he has decreed that our prayers would be a part of the means by which those things come to pass. I'll go to Joel Beakey again who says, he has ordained the end, but also the means to the end, and prayer is a very important means. So second teaching point tonight. God uses all the prayers of all the saints. He hears the prayers, but he also uses the prayers. God uses all the prayers of all the saints. I think this transforms the way that we look at prayer. Maybe you have looked at prayer as a way to change the mind of God. I would say that is not a healthy approach because it's not consistent with what we know of God. Numbers 23 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? In James 1.17, James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Prayer is not about us grabbing the wrist of God and twisting it behind his back until he is manipulated into giving us what we want. Prayer is more about us learning to depend on God and having our minds changed so that our minds will line up with his will and his decrees. There's that old cliche, prayer changes things. That is partly true. It changes things in as much as God has ordained that it would. So I'll use this example. Imagine a little boy is going to go fishing, right? And he looks around and he's like, I don't have an anchor. Okay, I, I can't sail out into this pond here with no anchor, right? That's a bad decision. I got, got no anchor and I got no paddle, but I want to fish. So he has a long piece of rope. So he ties it inside the boat, right? And then he ties it up on the shore. And then he sets off into the pond and he goes and he fishes for a couple hours and, you know, does okay. It's time to come back. So he grabs the rope and he starts to pull himself back to the shore. From that little boy's perspective, he might think, man, I am strong. I'm pulling the whole shore towards me. You know what I mean? But we know that's not really what's going on, right? He's pulling himself to the shore. 
And this is really a picture of prayer. We're not moving and manipulating God to do what we want Him to do. In praying to God, we're actually pulling ourselves closer to Him, aligning ourselves with what He has already written on the scroll, with what He has decreed. So prayer changes things so much as God has willed it, but prayer is always changing us if we're doing it right. And in the case of Revelation 8, isn't it exciting to know that God has ordained our prayers to be a part of the timeline for His Son's return and the judgment that's coming on the earth? You say, well, why would I pray to Jesus for Him to return if the time is already fixed? Because we know it is. He told us it is. Because in praying for His return, He will change your heart to be more prepared for His return. And in praying for His return... We know he has ordained the prayers of his people as a means to bring about his second coming and his judgment. And if that doesn't motivate you to pray, well, then I don't know, I I don't know, I have nothing left to offer. That should get you excited. Prayer will change me to be more ready for Jesus' second coming. And God is has ordained from before time to use my prayers to bring about the second coming. That should motivate us to get on our knees every night and say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. All right. My new fancy preaching app tells me I have six minutes left, okay? I have a timer. When it gets down to two, it starts flashing red at me. So you should all be very happy to know this. So uh, let's bring it home. I just want you to see all the divine help in this passage. I want you to see the real power in your prayer life comes from God. We've already covered the intercessory help of the Son, right? Without the priestly ministry of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, you and I don't have a prayer life. So we can start there. We get divine help from the priestly work of the second person of the Trinity. But we also see there are seven angels around and then this eighth angel with a censer. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 give us a little look into the job description of an angel. And that chapter is so packed with all this stuff about how great Jesus is, sometimes we miss that little job description. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are beings created by God to minister on his behalf and the ministry that they perform is for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's the church. That's the people of God throughout all the ages. And that squares with what we read in Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so the heavenly picture that we get here are... The angels at the throne of God, waiting for the prayers of the saints to rise up like incense to the Lord, eager to get orders from the Lord so they can go and serve for the sake of the saints who offered the prayers. Again, so, all right, I told you I had nothing else. Here's one more motivation to pray, okay? That there are angels waiting to carry out the will of God as our prayers are lined up with the will of God. When we pray in line with God's will and we are praying things that God is saying, yes, I'm going to do that, and your prayers are a part of it, he sends his angels out and they help accomplish the work. To know that God is unleashing his army of heavenly beings for the purpose of helping the church accomplish its its mission, man, that, that should motivate you to be on your knees. And so, who's sending those angels out to help us? It's not like they are up in heaven going, well, what are you going to do today, guys? You know, they are acting uh, at the command of the Lord at all times. It's what he says 24-7, right? That's all they do is what he says. 
So what that tells us is that the help of the angels here, they're being dispatched by the Father. So we have the Son helping our prayers along with the priestly intercession. We have the Father here dispatching his angels. And then if you go to the book of Romans, we find out this about the Spirit of God in our prayers. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So you have Christ interceding from heaven, but you have the Spirit here helping us along on earth. And when our words are falling short because the stress of life is too much, or our words are falling short because the joy of life is too much, the Spirit is there to provide the words. The Spirit is there to assist with His own intercessory ministry. So, the Son interceding in heaven, the Father sending angels, the Spirit helping us when we don't have the words. Do you see how God is employing His power in the prayers of His people? Again, it's motivation to get on our knees before our Lord. So, final teaching point for tonight, if you're waiting for number three. God empowers all the prayers of all the saints. He hears them, He uses them, and He empowers them. Why is this here? Like, why don't we go straight from silence in heaven to the sound of trumpets? Well, first of all, because that's not what John saw, okay? We should remember John is relaying to us what he saw faithfully and accurately, okay? So he's, he's just telling us what he saw. But, but secondly, it's there because God knew the people listening to the message needed to hear it. And I'm not just talking about us tonight. I'm talking about the first people that heard it. People who attended the church at Ephesus and were members there, the people who were members at Smyrna, the people in Pergamum, the people in those seven churches in Asia Minor. Because many of them are going to be thrown into prison for their faith. They're going to be arrested, they're going to be beaten on, they're going to be tortured, all just for identifying with Jesus. Some of them would even lose their lives and be martyred. And in the midst of all their suffering and in the midst of their pain, Here is the Lord saying to them, prayer is powerful. The ministry of Jesus has made your prayers acceptable to the Father, and your prayers are a part of the Father's great plan to bring this world to a conclusion and glorify His Son in the process. And God Himself is pouring out His help and His power into your prayer life. And that would have been a great encouragement to these people as they were walking through the great tribulation of being a believer in a world that hates you because they hated your Lord first. They were despised in the Roman Empire. They were a minority in the Roman Empire. They were accused of turning the world upside down. They were preaching their way through the known world, boldly proclaiming uh, to, to Jews and Gentiles alike that Jesus is Lord. And when Satan and the government and the culture pushed back against them, threatening them, beating them, killing them, telling them, you can't say this name anymore, what did they do? Well, Acts 4. Peter and John get released And Luke says, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you see that there, by the way? Just, just hearkening back to what we said earlier. They know God has declared the end from the beginning. What you have predestined to take place, and yet they're still praying because they know it's important, right? Keep going. He says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed, they knew where their power came from. And their prayer was already a part of God's plan. And their prayers were acceptable to God by the ministry of Christ. And their prayer was powerful by the help of God. And that provides for us a model. This is what we should be doing. This should be our first reaction to persecution and opposition in this world. It should be to get on our knees and pray. Not to post on Facebook. Not to complain about Democrats or Republicans. Not to call our friend. And to yell and vent our anger. It should be to get down on our knees and pray. Ben Patterson says, churches can run without prayer. Whole denominations can run without prayer. The question is, is what they're doing worth doing if they can do it without prayer? We are the workmanship of Christ. He's created us as new men and women in Christ Jesus, and he has given us work to do. And that work is fulfilling the Great Commission. It is making disciples of every nation and and baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching them everything he's commanded us. And what we've seen in Revelation is that we're doing this work in the midst of conquest and war and famine and death and persecution. But if we want to be faithful, we just need to stick to God's plan. Marching around the city, lifting our voices in prayer. Soon the trumpet will blast and the walls will come down. But until then, we pray as we work to fulfill our mission. Let's pray now to close up our service. Father in heaven, thank you for the blood of your son that we know our prayers right now are heard. God, they're heard because his ministry has made him acceptable. Lord, we thank you that the angels are ready to carry out your will for Seaford Baptist Church. We thank you, Father, that when we don't know what to pray or how to say it, that your spirit is there doing inner work himself I thank you that you're all in on our prayer lives Lord and I pray that we would be all in God one of our five core values as a church is expectant prayer that we expect that when we pray you're when we pray you are going to answer sometimes you'll say no sometimes you'll say yes sometimes maybe you'll give an answer we don't expect it's not a no or a yes but whatever the answer from your tongue is Lord I pray that we would be surrendered to it. And more than that, God, I pray that as we go about the work of spreading your gospel, the work of trunk or treats and upward basketball seasons and uh, Christmas light shows and small groups and preaching from the pulpit, God, as we go about the work of growing the vine, of tilling the soil and growing the vine and fulfilling the Great Commission, God, how foolish would we be to try to do it apart from you in prayer? We can carry everything to you. And that includes this wonderful ministry that you have given us in jars of clay. And so I pray, Father, that, um, that we would pray more. 
I pray we would get more comfortable praying more in our services. That we would get more comfortable um, to, with, with the idea of being alone with you in our own prayer closets on a daily basis, lifting up our petitions to you, asking for our daily bread, Lord, asking for protection from the enemy, asking for your name to be made holy, asking for forgiveness for our sins. And I pray, Father, that um, as people come into this church, that they would recognize it, that they would see this is a church that prays. This is a church that takes it seriously. They don't use the time of prayer to shuffle people on and off the stage. That they don't use um, prayer as just an element to beautify a worship service. But that we see it as our lifeline to you, Lord. That we see it as... um, We see it as one of the greatest privileges that we have as Christians to boldly approach the throne. And I pray that we would do it often, Lord, as a a body and as individuals. Help us to value this, God. Help us to value prayer. And we lift this up in Jesus' name. And before, Lord, we say amen, we ask that your son would return, just as the scriptures call us to. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.